You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. King of Outer Space, uh, Pete Atkins. She'd been crying herself to sleep for nearly a year now, but it still didn't feel like a habit. It still felt new and raw. Here's how it went. She'd do the bathroom stuff, get into bed, read for a while, remote some late-night host into TV life, kill the light, and close her eyes. And somewhere between the last sentences from the chat show and the first whispers from the dream country, she'd be jerked awake by a body-racking sob and find her eyes were full of tears. Her name was Marion Marshall, she was 28 years old, and her fiancé was dead. Fade in. Exterior. Deep space. Against a field of stars, a rocket ship hurtles through the void. Flames shimmer from its boosters, the majestic roar telling the laws of physics to go fuck themselves. The ship is a retro-futurist dream. Fins, chrome, streamlined splendor. Like the child of some 1958 jam session between Werner von Braun and a hotshot from the design team at Cadillac. No, screw that. You know what it's like? It's like the Legion of Superheroes clubhouse from a 1963 issue of Adventure Comics. Turned on its ass, fitted with a nose cone and a bunch of thrusters and sent blasting through the intergalactic ether as if imagination had grabbed science in the schoolyard and slapped the little geek around some till it knew its place. Interior, rocket ship, cockpit. A big curved window offers an unobstructed view of the cosmos and the walls are studded with pieces of equipment picked up from a yard sale thrown by the guys who designed the Quatermass experiment. Sitting in the single chair is Jonathan King, astronaut, mid-thirties, ruggedly handsome, spacesuit from the racks of the tailor who dressed Adam Strange and Steve Zodiac, skin-tight, colourful, heroic and decorative, stopping just short of the point at which you'd question the wearer's sexual preference. Close, King's eyes fixed on the window, flicking steadily from side to side, systematically scanning the galactic vistas through which he rides. Close, King's left hand. The fingers are wrapped in sensor tape, fiber optic cables trailing from them into a computer input in the chair's armrest. Pulses of light throb down the cables. Close, on the ship's monitor. Monitor screens across which streams of data play as the information from his scanning eyes is electronically stored. Wide, King unhooks the sensors from his fingers and walks over to the radio. He grabs the handset, which looks suspiciously like the bulky RCA Mike Elvis used on Ed Sullivan, and talks into it. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Can... Cut. Marion wasn't sure what woke her up. Groggy and confused, she rolled over to blink her bedside clock's LCD into focus. 4.02 a.m. After four... The little girl in her was relieved. She hated waking at night to get up and pee or whatever because she was never quite sure that something supernatural wasn't waiting for her in the dark. But some long-forgotten counsellor at some long-forgotten summer camp had once told her that it was only the four hours after midnight that were the dangerous ones, and she'd lived by that wisdom ever since. She was about to push the covers aside, ready to head to the bathroom, when she realised that it wasn't her bladder that had pulled her from sleep after all. It was a noise. Low and burly heard, a continuous stream of crackle and hiss like an AM station failing in a desert midnight. 
Marion padded her hand in a blind arc across her quilt and found the remote. She'd already hit the power button before registering that the TV hadn't been on until she'd done so. She killed it again before the infomercial had a chance to pitch itself into the darkness and propped herself up on one elbow to try and locate the source of the sound. It was coming from the drawer of her bedside table. Her hand was braver than her heart, reaching instinctively to pull the door open before she stopped it, suddenly convinced that she was misreading the sound. She heard it transform in her imagination, moving from the electronic to the animal, becoming chitinous and agitated, the sound of some multi-limbed insect monstrosity, a huge waterbug trapped and furious and eager to be free. A panicked revulsion swept through her, and clicking on the reading lamp, she swung her legs around to sit on the edge of the bed, staring helplessly at the drawer. Then she got it. Maybe it was the light, maybe it was taking a breath, maybe it was just the resurgent reason that came with a fuller wakefulness, but she suddenly knew precisely what the noise was, and with a self-deprecating groan, she pulled the drawer open. Her earthquake preparedness kit wasn't much by Los Angeles standards, and its components were all but hidden by the various unfiled receipts and other detritus of daily life that Marion regularly threw in the drawer to keep her surfaces tidy, but some quick scrabbling revealed the flashlight, the first aid box, and, finally, the tiny transistor radio. She pulled it from the drawer, wondering how it had somehow turned itself on, and listened to the strange atonal music of its stationless signal as it seemed to strain for clarity and connection. An unbidden image came to her straight from the World War II movies that her father had loved and had tried in vain to make her love also, a soldier lost behind enemy lines, trying desperately to find a frequency that would bring him nearer to home. Her eyes had just registered the curious fact that the radio's power switch was firmly in the off position when the signal suddenly locked in and a voice, tiny and distant, emerged through the whistle and whine. Hear me, Marion? Marion? It's me. It's Jonathan. She dropped it like she'd been bitten, her hand flying to her gasping mouth and tears filling her eyes as the old wounds opened again. And the radio shut off when you dropped it? As soon as it hit the floor. Or as soon as you allowed the grief to flower properly? The therapist allowed herself a small smile. Gentle. Not smug at all, but Marion didn't like it anyway. My grief has no problem flowering. I, I water it every night, she said, and instantly regretted it. Juliana was particularly fond of extended metaphor and could often take these weekly sessions into such convolutions of figurative overlay that Marion sometimes wondered whether her $80 was being spent on therapy or instead on an unacknowledged prep course of some bad creative writing class. She jumped back in before the other woman could run with it. But that's not the point, she said. Yes, his voice went away, but I heard it. It was four in the morning, Juliana said. You'd just woken up. I wasn't dreaming. No, I'm not suggesting you were. Juliana's eloquent hands moved in a symmetrical semaphore, placatory and soothing. And I don't doubt that white noise from the radio is what woke you up, but... Marion interrupted. What then, she said. I was still in a hypnagogic state and the voice was in my head. Do you think? Juliana said, crossing her perfect legs and cocking her head as if a thought had never occurred to her. A resenter, Marion thought, as she made the left onto Olive too sharply, the Chevy's ten-year-old engine giving a rattle of complaint. I resent her trim little figure and her soft little voice, 
I resent her precise little hands and the way they weave their subtitles for the emotionally hard of hearing. I resent her black stockings and her high heels. I bet all her male clients want to fuck her and I resent that too. I... Shit, Marion said out loud, glancing into her rearview mirror. She'd been so busy bitching that she'd missed the ride on Buena Vista. Now she was screwed. Burbank always confused her and she knew there wasn't another road that would deposit her on the freeway for a couple of miles. She wanted to one of these side roads would at least take her down as far as Riverside. She could take that through the park and come out on Los Feliz. Staring up the right to try and judge the street, she found herself looking at a store window. The sadness overwhelmed her before she realised why it was. House of Secrets, the sign said. She knew it well and had been there many times. Not recently, though. No reason to, not now. And she hadn't realised it was this close to Juliana's office. It had always been Jonathan who drove when they made those Saturday morning trips to let him browse excitedly through the old comic books in which the store specialised while she hovered near a rack full of action figures trying to pretend that she had the slightest interest in being there. For a crazy moment she considered parking the car and going in. Thought about peeling open one of those stupid plastic bags that the geeks cherished. Museum quality! Acid free! and breathing in the mustiness of an old issue of Mystery in Space the way he used to do. And then she thought about the fresh bullets of pain that such a sensory trigger would fire into her, and she jumped the light, ignoring the honking horn of the accord she'd cut off and headed south. On Riverside, she switched from NPR to an oldies station and was rewarded with the penguin singing Earth Angel. The record was older than she was. Her parents had still been in junior high when it was made, but she loved it. She knew enough about music to understand that its chord sequence was banal and its melody simplistic, but she also knew enough about magic to understand that none of that mattered. Her mouth creased into something that felt unfamiliar and a little forced, but was still undeniably a smile. She began to hum along as the road took her through Griffith Park. By the time the Chevy was climbing the elevation that let the road look down on the concrete slash that called itself the Los Angeles River, the penguins had been replaced by the stones and their white boy wannabe swagger. How come M&M's are wigger, Marion thought, and Mick Jagger isn't? The static that was starting to break up Mick's little fantasy about New York divorcee she put down to the altitude and then realised it wasn't meant to work that way. Puzzled, she looked down at the dial as if it were going to explain itself to her. Her finger was reaching out, ready to punch in another station, when the static overwhelmed the song completely. Its cacophony crescendoed and then cut off. There was a beat of utter silence. Marion heard a dog barking distantly somewhere in the park. And then a voice, a little out of phase in each of the car's four speakers. Marion, are you receiving me? Over. Once upon a time, there was a little boy who lived in the forest. A kindly old woodsman had taken a shine to the boy, who looked to him often for answers to the questions that his wicked stepmother was too busy to consider. I was at the stream this morning, the boy said one day, while the woodsman was sharpening his axe, and there was a horse drinking. After a moment, it looked up at me, flicked its tail, and said, How many miles to Babylon? Well, there's no need to be embarrassed, the woodsman said. You're young. You can't be expected to know the answers to every esoteric question some horse wants to ask you. That's not the point, the boy said excitedly. People will think it's strange. Everyone knows that horses don't talk. Was this horse wearing a saddle? 
the woodsman asked. No, I think it was a wild horse, the boy said. Then what does it care for the opinions of men, the woodsman said, and turned his attention back to his whetstone. Here's what Marion did. She did all that stuff you do. She talked to people. She made phone calls. She examined... I'm sorry. She examined all the relevant paperwork. She pushed and she prodded and she made herself unpopular, kneading at history to try and make a new shape of it. She doubted her sanity often and regretted it hardly at all. And eventually, all this doing led her to the complex of buildings where Jonathan had worked and where he had died. Cosmotech Research had its own grounds on the outskirts of Simi Valley. It had a big rectangular building with very few windows. It had a parking lot and a guard who checked out your legs as you left your car. It had a nifty corporate logo and potted plants in its lobby. What it didn't have was a metal detector, which was extremely handy, because Marion had a gun. Jonathan's alive. Kravitz blinked which was a fairly big reaction for him. Marion wasn't sure if she'd in fact ever seen the lids lower on those pale blue eyes before. He preferred to blink when people weren't looking, she'd figured, lest it allow some reading of what he was thinking or feeling. Jonathan and he had known each other since college, and they'd already been partnered on their research work when Marion and Jonathan had met. Tidy little man. She'd never liked him, and she liked him less now. His office, surprisingly, wasn't neat and precise. Papers and shit were piled everywhere, though there was a completely clear semicircular area on his desk immediately in front of him, as if he was somehow canuting the tides of chaos and getting a kick out of it. He still hadn't answered her. He's alive, she said again, and you're going to tell me where he is. Marion, Krevitt said, we were both at the funeral. Memorial service, said Marion. You can't have a funeral when there's no body. And you can't have a body when a laboratory blows up and everything in it is reduced to ashes. His voice was as calm as if he were debating a sports scholarship student in a logic class. But then she hadn't shown him the gun yet. I have a theory, she said. He smiled a little, as if theories weren't really available to pretty girls who worked in insurance. But she didn't let that put her off. I think the explosion was a cover I think your research went further than you ever told anyone. I think I, th I, th I think you sent him somewhere, out there. She was furious with herself for faltering at the end, but she couldn't help it. She couldn't say out loud in a sunlit office on an October afternoon in a California suburb what her midnight thoughts had led her to believe, that this privately financed space research company had somehow built a rocket, launched it in secret, and sent her boyfriend into space. Kravitz laughed at her, which was all she needed. Her hand was in her purse as he began to speak. God almighty, Marion, he said. Do you honestly... Th he broke off to stare at the gun. Fine, she said. Fuck what I think. Tell me what happened, or I swear to Christ I'll shoot you in the face. She'd made sure they'd walked close together as he led her down to one of the labs close enough for Kravitz to never stop considering just how much damage a bullet could do from such proximity. They'd gone through several levels of security, but Kravitz's card had opened every automated door without a problem, despite the satisfying trembling of his hand. By the time he opened the final door, they were several stories below ground and hadn't passed another human for quite some time. 
The laboratory was probably impressive, if you knew anything about laboratories, but despite her life with Jonathan, Marion had always remained happily ignorant of such things. It was a big room, full of science shit. She had no idea of the specific functions of most of the equipment with which the place was packed to overflowing. Monitors, data screens, dish receivers, and a thousand annoyingly untidy wires. But the centerpiece of the whole operation, the thing from which many of those wires originated, was appallingly clear. An image from a hundred bad movies. It surprised her only in its familiarity. A large vat filled to within a few inches of its glass lip by a salmon pink translucent substance and floating in the center of that amniotic jelly, a human brain. Kravitz's hand was still shaking, but the Marlboro seemed to be helping. He was perched on a lab stool beside a workbench and was taking long, greedy drags of the cigarette, as if he still couldn't believe she'd allowed him to light it up and might at any moment rescind her permission. As if she cared. As if she cared about anything anymore. He also wouldn't shut up. Marion doubted he'd ever talked so much in his life. He hadn't actually admitted that he'd killed Jonathan, but his ramblings were making it clear that their relationship had changed in a somewhat fundamental way once Kravitz had realized he needed a guinea pig. He was asleep when it happened, he said. He, d he didn't feel a thing. He gestured expansively with his cigarette-free hand at the various data recording devices. He's sending so much stuff, he said a tiny hint of pride creeping back into his nervous voice. Stuff a machine just wouldn't get. Guiding intelligence, you see. I, I knew that was what was needed. Marion had already started tuning out the specifics. The essence was clear. She'd not really been wrong. Jonathan was in space, in a manner of speaking, his mind hardwired into some kind of radio telescope system and transmitted out into the ether to explore the universe on behalf of this contemptible little shit. Does he know? she asked. Kravitz shook his head. We weren't sure, he said, until we started getting the pictures. There was nothing wrong with the VCR or the monitor, but the images were distorted and grainy, like a warped kinescope of a weak broadcast of old monochrome nitrate. Imagination, said Kravitz. I hadn't figured on that surviving. But it's allowed him a... A construct, as you see. He paused, as if puzzled, not by the inexplicable presence of the images, but by their provenance. Curious choices, he said. No. Of course his ship would look like that, Marion thought. Of course that's how he'd be dressed. She didn't realize she was weeping until the salt stung her lip. She let the tears keep coming crying not for herself, but for Jonathan, Jonathan's orphan consciousness, lost out there in the galaxy and dressing its voyage in half-remembered dreams of space heroes to comfort its lonely, endless flight. Her sobbing seemed to increase Kravitz's anxiety. She wasn't surprised. Distraught woman with a gun, make anyone nervous. She swung to face him, lifting her weapon. I can turn it off, he begged, the cigarette dropping from his fingers. I can turn it all off. Give him peace. Marion let him sweat for a moment and then shook her head. That's not what I want, she said. Fade in. Deep space. 
the ship blasts through the void, ridiculous, magnificent. Interior, rocket ship cockpit. The cabin is identical to when last we saw it, except that there are now two chairs in the center. Jonathan King, astronaut, is in one of them. In the other, dressed in form-hugging space girl gear, is his fellow crew member. Dale Arden to his Flash Gordon, Alana to his Adam Strange, Dejah Thoris to his John Carter. Marion looks around the cabin. She blinks, and the cabin morphs in a shimmer of becoming. Interior, a throne room in Byzantium. A royal peacock walks unselfconsciously behind the enthroned lovers as Marion's bejeweled hand reaches for Jonathan's. Jonathan cocks his head as if learning the rules of a new game. He blinks. Interior, bridge of a pirate's galleon. The buccaneer captain smiles at his pirate princess and lifts his hand to meet hers. Dissolve to, exterior, deep space. The full-rigged galleon holds its course among the stars, sails billowing in impossible winds. Morphing in and out of new avatars, a gothic cathedral, a huge white swan, the ship sails on, disappearing into the distance. Fade out. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.